President Biden speaks at a college in Belfast today as part of his trip to Northern Ireland to mark 25 years of peace. It's Wednesday, April 12th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, the Biden administration's proposal to regulate vehicle emissions could give a boost to electric cars and trucks. Also this hour... I had trouble taking care of myself, trouble eating, trouble sleeping. When I did sleep, I had nightmares. The mental health effects of the Boston Marathon bombings 10 years later, and the plan to restore two of America's biggest reservoirs. We're in the third decade of a historic drought that has caused conditions that the people who built this system would not have imagined. Forecast says partly sunny today, highs in the 70s, warm for the end of the week. It's 7.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The second of two black lawmakers expelled from the Tennessee House could be reappointed today. The Shelby County Commission is meeting to decide whether to reinstate Memphis Representative Justin Pearson. From member station WKNO, Katie Reardon reports. The Shelby County Commission has the power to fill vacancies in the Republican-led legislature. Chairperson Mikkel Lowry says constituents deserve to have their duly elected representative return to office. We've heard from so many people. Uh, the inbox is still being flooded with emails that they want to see Justin Pearson back into the seat. Earlier this week, Nashville's Metro Council voted to reinstate Representative Justin Jones, who was also expelled from the Tennessee House for violating decorum rules by protesting for gun law reform on the House floor. Both Jones and Pearson would need to win special elections to permanently regain their seats. For NPR News, I'm Katie Reardon in Memphis. The federal government has declared a synthetic drug cocktail an emergent threat to U.S. public health. The warning is for the animal tranquilizer, xylazine. NPR's Brian Mann says it's increasingly showing up in illegal street drugs. This mixture of fentanyl and xylazine, which is known on the street as Trank, is just spreading really fast. It used to be mostly a problem in the Northeast. Now it's really everywhere, with federal officials reporting a 1,000% increase in xylazine-related overdose deaths in southern states in a single year. NPR's Brian Mann reporting. President Biden is preparing to give a speech next hour in Belfast, Northern Ireland. He's making the visit to commemorate the Good Friday Accords that brought an end to sectarian violence. Biden will then travel to the neighboring Republic of Ireland. Ukraine's prime minister insists his country's defense will be very effective once it receives all the military hardware it's been promised by the West. Dan Karpinchuk reports on the prime minister's official visit to Canada. Prime Minister Dennis Schmal's comments were aimed at deflecting suggestions raised in leaked Pentagon documents that hinted Ukraine's air defense is vulnerable. During an interview with CTV, he said currently about 80% of Russian missiles and drones are destroyed by Ukraine's air defenses. Meanwhile, Ottawa says it plans to ship thousands of assault rifles and machine guns to Ukraine as part of its latest federal military and financial aid package, worth $59 million. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau also said a $2.4 billion loan to Kyiv, announced in last month's federal budget, has been sent. That money will go to support essential services such as pension payments, fuel and the repair of damaged energy infrastructure. For NPR News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk in Toronto. The Labor Department will release the latest monthly report on inflation this morning. Forecasters think the annual rate of inflation rose about 5% in March. That's better than February, but still high for consumers. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. An environmental nonprofit is asking the Healy administration to prevent the nuclear, or the Pilgrim nuclear power plant from discharging radioactive water into Cape Cod Bay. As WBUR's Barbara Moran reports, the Association to Preserve Cape Cod says the state can stop the dumping by invoking a 1971 Massachusetts law. The state's Ocean Sanctuaries Act strictly limits industrial discharges into Cape Cod Bay, with a few exceptions. Andrew Gottlieb is with the Association to Preserve Cape Cod, and he says the law would prohibit discharge of radioactive water from Pilgrim's cleanup. Because the legislature decided back in 1971 that new discharges were inappropriate for the bay and has settled that matter for us. They're just simply illegal and not allowed under Massachusetts state law. A spokesman for the company decommissioning Pilgrim declined to comment on potential litigation. The company has asked both state and federal regulators for new permits that would allow the dumping. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu plans to unveil the city's 2024 budget today. It involves $4 billion in spending. That's about 7 percent higher than the previous budget. About 40 percent of the money will go to Boston public schools. Other key spending areas include public safety and some sustainability initiatives. Somerville has a new school superintendent. The city's school committee chose Ruben Carmona as the next school leader. Right now, he's an administrator in the Salem public schools and has worked in Boston and Lowell, he'll replace Mary Skipper, who left Somerville last year to lead Boston public schools. A group of black doctors is launching a new initiative to try to increase diversity in their field. It's called the Doctors Back to School program. Members of the New England Medical Association will visit local schools to teach students about opportunities in medicine. Dr. Lucy Lomas is the association's director of community health and wellness, and she says while the percentage of black physicians has grown, it's not enough. Representation matters. You know, students can't be what they don't see. Um, So that's why we really thought it was important to go to the schools, show them, hey, look, we actually have origin stories similar to them and just show them that we care. The program began at University High School in Dorchester last week. The time is seven minutes past seven. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Our Planet Live in Concert. The Netflix series is now a live concert event coming to Emerson Colonial Theater on April 23rd. Tickets at emersoncolonialtheater.com. In sports, Bruins beat the Washington Capitals 5-2 to at the Garden last night. The Bees will finish out their regular season tomorrow against the Canadiens. Red Sox lost to the Tampa Bay Rays 7-2 to in Florida last night. The two teams play again tonight. Our weather forecast, partly sunny today. Temperatures in the low 70s. It'll be cooler on the Cape today. There is another red flag warning posted today because of dry conditions that could lead to brush fires. It is warm out there this morning. Tonight, it'll be partly cloudy. Temperatures in the 50s. Sunshine tomorrow. Temperatures near 80 degrees. Right now, 66 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Michelle Martin. The auto industry is moving towards electric vehicles. The big question is, how fast should it go? Well, the Environmental Protection Agency has chimed in with its answer, which is very fast. The agency just proposed the toughest ever rules around tailpipe emissions. It's actually a big push to get the auto industry to focus on electric vehicles. Yesterday, EPA Administrator Michael Regan laid out why. The stakes cannot be higher. We must continue to act with haste and ambition to confront the climate crisis and to leave all our children, like my nine-year-old son Matthew, a healthier and safer world. As for how the EPA plans to do that, NPR's Camilla Dominowski is here to tell us. Thank goodness. Good morning. Good morning, Michelle. So what exactly is the EPA announcing today? All right, so these are proposed tailpipe emissions standards. And these tailpipe emissions include both pollution, like smog, right, stuff that makes people sick, and greenhouse gases. Transportation is the single biggest source of carbon dioxide emissions in the U.S., which is fueling catastrophic climate change. So these are regulations that cover both of these things, and they are about to get, under this proposal, significantly stricter. So if I have this right, though, Camilla, hasn't the EPA been trying to make cars cleaner for some time now? I'm thinking decades. So what's different about this? So the standards are going to take a huge leap in terms of how strict they are. And the way these standards work, it's not like every single vehicle has to meet the standard. It's that on average, the whole fleet of cars that a company makes has to meet them. And the new standards are going to be so strict that Hypothetically, a company can meet them however they want. They're technology-neutral standards, that's what they're called. But realistically, they're going to have to make electric vehicles to bring that average down low enough to comply. Now, I'm going to throw some numbers at you about how many electric vehicles we're talking. A few years ago, electric vehicles were about 2% of new car sales in the U.S. Right now, 7%. The EPA is looking at 2032. That's nine years from now. And they're envisioning a U.S. where two-thirds of new vehicles are electric. Okay, wow. So is that even feasible? At a minimum, it's really, really hard. It's not just about making the vehicles, which is its own challenge. It's having chargers for all of them, electricity to power those chargers. It's having batteries to put in them. It's having minerals for those batteries. The challenge here is huge. What the EPA would say is that the government is also providing a lot of support for the transition. There is funding for battery plants and minerals and chargers, right? California and the EU have electric car mandates, slightly different in structure, but they have policies that are going to require electric vehicles as well. Lots of companies were going this direction anyway, just not maybe as quickly. So the EPA says if you factor all that in, it is feasible. The auto industry says maybe. Okay, what's next? Well, there's going to be a comment period. These are proposed standards, so expect to hear about feasibility. There will also almost certainly be a political fight, possibly a legal one. The current version of these standards, which is nowhere near as strict, is being challenged in court by red states led by Texas. One thing that I'll note is interesting about that, the auto industry has actually chimed in to defend the EPA's right to set these standards, and they called the shift toward electrification Not necessarily the speed, but the overall direction, inevitable. That is NPR's Camilla Domnowski. Camilla, thank you. Thank you.
Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg has filed suit against Republican House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan. The New York DA claims that Jordan is interfering in the state prosecution of former President Donald Trump. Jordan's been raising questions about the grand jury investigation of Trump, and he's demanded confidential documents and testimony from Bragg, as well as from current and former employees of the DA's office. Adam Klasfeld is managing editor of Law and Crime, and he joins us now via Skype. Good morning, Adam. Good morning. So not that there's anything usual about this case, but how extraordinary is this move by the district attorney to sue a, a representative in the House? Well, it's definitely an extraordinary lawsuit and the actions that preceded it and the case, it's all very extraordinary. Yeah. It, con congressional committees have pretty broad discretion about what they can investigate, but what the lawsuit basically says is that it's not absolute. And interestingly enough, there a lot of the outer boundaries of this were defined in another investigation of uh, former President Trump. This was by Congress, and it was Trump versus Mazars. And you can see throughout the lawsuit and the filings, they're invoking that precedent saying, hey, it doesn't live up to the test that the Supreme Court established in that case. Now, the lawsuit uh, calls Jordan's behavior uh, brazen and unconstitutional attack, a transparent campaign to intimidate and attack the district attorney. If you could just talk about what the lawsuit is aiming to do here. The lawsuit is first and foremost trying to quash a subpoena into uh, former the former deputy of DA Alvin Bragg, Mark Pomerantz. Basically, the subpoena said that Mr. Pomerantz had written a book about his tenure with the district attorney's office, had done a media tour of it, and therefore doesn't really have the same privileges to protect things that he's written about, that he's gone on TV to speak about. And what the DA is arguing is that the privileges belong to the office. They don't belong to him. So mm -hmm. on a core level, they're trying to basically declare that subpoena invalid and prospectively get the judge to declare any future subpoenas that uh, Jordan's committee or any other congressional committee might send to his office is invalid in trampling upon the 10th Amendment and the separation of powers. Now, what Jordan is trying to do with this subpoena, is there a basis for what he's doing and for his questions? Now, one of the things that the congressman has said, he said, well, we're looking into federal funding. This is the DA's office has accepted federal funding into it. Well, we looked into it and basically Jordan had claimed that the DA's office admitted to it. Well, they said the opposite twice. They said that federal funding, none of the federal funding actually went into the investigation and the indictment of former President Trump. So the basis will be determined by the judge, and it might go to that test that we were talking about earlier, mm -hmm. established by the Supreme Court, Trump v. Mazars. What has Representative Jordan said about the lawsuit? He has basically said that Congress has the right to do this. He said that, uh, talking about Pomerantz, that he has gone out and written this book. We have the right to scrutinize it. And this lawsuit essentially throws down the gauntlet to challenge those assertions. Adam Klasfeld, Managing Editor of Law and Crime. Thanks for being here, Adam. Thank you for having me.
New inflation numbers out this morning are expected to show that the pace of price hikes slowed a bit last month. Yeah, but people's wallets are still being stretched, and the rising cost of services, travel, restaurant meals, could keep inflation uncomfortably high for some time to come. NPR's Scott Horsley is with us now with a preview of today's inflation report. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. So I understand from you uh, that prices are still going up, but not as fast as they were last summer. What else can we learn from today's report? It is expected to show some improvement. Annual inflation peaked at just over 9% last June. It was 6% in February. And forecasters think it will be closer to 5% in March. So it is moving in the right direction. But that means prices are still climbing about two and a half times as fast as the Federal Reserve would like. Yesterday, the International Monetary Fund cited stubbornly high inflation and rising interest rates around the world as some of the factors that are weighing on global economic growth. But Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, who is attending the IMF meetings this week, tried to put a more positive spin on the story. Commodity prices have eased. Supply chain snarls are being resolved. The global financial system has generally proven quite resilient. In fact, the IMF actually raised its forecast for the U.S. economy this year, although it's still predicting pretty lackluster GDP growth of about 1.6 percent. This kind of feels like I've been asking you this month after month, but what is keeping inflation so high? It's been a moving target. You know, when inflation first spiked back in 2021, it was mostly driven by runaway demand for stuff and supply chains that just couldn't keep up. Then last year, of course, Russia invaded Ukraine, and we saw the price of energy and food skyrocket. As Yellen noted, a lot of those goods prices have since come back to earth, and we're not buying as much stuff anymore. But Austin Goolsby, who's one of the newest members of the Fed's rate-setting committee, says people are still spending money on services, and that's creating a new inflation headache. The economy's still coming back from bizarro COVID times. Travel, hotels, restaurants, leisure, recreation, entertainment. The man has returned and the inflation has proved particularly persistent. Goolsby warns services prices may not be as responsive to the Fed's main inflation-fighting tool, which is higher interest rates. So just one more thing. Are Fed watchers still expecting the central bank to raise interest rates again? Maybe. Uh, right now, betting markets think the Fed will raise interest rates by another quarter percentage point at its next meeting in three weeks. But that could be the last rate hike for a while. You know, since the collapse of Silicon Valley and signature banks last month, other lenders have gotten stingier about making loans. And that amplifies the Fed's rate hikes and acts like another break on the economy. So Goolsby says he and his colleagues have to be careful about how high rates should go. And the Fed's job is to be more paranoid than anyone else. That's what they pay us for. In unluckier times, more interesting times like the times we're in right now with wild shocks and financial stresses, it means we have to dig into loads of new information. And today's inflation report is one key piece of information for the Fed. That is NPR's Scott Horsley. Scott, thank you. You're welcome. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, the latest findings on what causes long COVID. And in about 20 minutes, authorities in Tunisia are targeting black migrants in a crackdown on sub-Saharan Africans. It's 19 minutes past 7. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms Custom Builders, building healthy, high-performance homes for families and for the future, supporting Youth Enrichment Services' April 20th Black Diamond Gala and their mission to use outdoor experiences to prepare Boston youth to meet life's challenges. YesKids.org gala and ThoughtForms-Corp.com. I'm Steve Inskeep. Around the world, our co-host Leila Fadel has been reporting from Ukraine. In your community, workers are unionizing in fields where they haven't always had a big presence. And farther afield, think really far, like Six, out of this world. Five, and liftoff of Artemis One. Morning Edition from NPR News takes you wherever the story is. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, the invisible wounds from the Boston Marathon bombings to people's mental health. Our week of special coverage continues at 745. Listen here on 90.9 or take us with you on your commute with the WBUR mobile app. Our weather forecast, partly sunny today, temperatures in the low 70s. Tonight should be partly cloudy with lows going down into the 50s and sunshine tomorrow, highs near 80 degrees for Friday, sunny temperatures Friday, possibly in the mid 80s. It is 66 degrees right now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From iDrive with Remote PC, providing remote access to PCs, Macs, and servers from anywhere. Designed to assist those working from home. More at RemotePC.com. From Peacock with the new original series, Mrs. Davis, about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof, streams April 20th on Peacock. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Layla Falden. Good morning. What's behind long COVID? That's the question frustrated patients and scientists have been working to answer for several years. And now it seems one possible explanation for the condition is gaining traction. NPR's Will Stone has more on those looking to solve long COVID's mystery. Brent Palmer's research on long COVID started before that phrase meant anything. Palmer had some friends who'd caught the virus while on a ski trip. It was March 2020, and they'd returned home with this new illness. Palmer works at the University of Colorado, where he studies how the immune system responds to infectious diseases. So this was too good to pass up. He started collecting their blood and was intrigued by one person in particular. I was up there maybe a month and a half after they had SARS-CoV-2, and she was still complaining of heart palpitations, chest pains, some difficulty breathing. Palmer was analyzing part of the immune system's arsenal, known as T-cells. And he noticed, unlike the others, her blood still had a very high percentage of these immune cells aimed at the virus. So I just kind of shelved that and thought, well, that's interesting. He says typically T-cells reach very high levels during the acute infection, and over time, they drop off. So he was surprised as he began looking at the T-cells of more and more long COVID patients well after they had been infected. These individuals had frequencies that were a hundredfold higher in some cases than the individuals that didn't have any sort of persistent symptoms. 
Those with long COVID also had higher levels of systemic inflammation. That was associated with worse lung function. It had been months since their infection, but it was like their immune system was still fighting the virus, which raised the question. Even despite the fact they test negative in a, a nasal swab, the vi- is the virus still persisting in the lung? Is it persisting in some other organ? Many scientists working on long COVID have wondered the same thing over the past few years. Maybe the virus isn't entirely gone. Maybe there are viral reservoirs hiding in the body. And with each new piece of evidence, the case for this is getting stronger. Take the findings of David Walt at Harvard Medical School. His team detected proteins from the coronavirus, mostly the spike protein, in the blood of some long COVID patients up to a year after their infection. And the only place it could be released from is from, you know, some sort of reservoir, some source of virus that continues to spew these proteins out. It was a relatively small study, and Walt says as they've looked at more long COVID patients, it appears only about 20 percent have viral proteins in their blood. But for those who do... We think that this is, you know, to some extent a smoking gun for the presence of, you know, a persistent active viral infection. Then there are all the places in the body where scientists have unearthed evidence of the virus, like in biopsies of the gut or in the stool of people who'd had COVID months earlier. Dr. Dan Shurto at the National Institutes of Health led a painstaking autopsy study of people who'd had COVID. We found virus in over 30 different cell types in tissues really throughout the body. Essentially, all the major organs, like the lungs, kidneys, liver, heart, and throughout the brain. It you know, provides definitive evidence that the virus is capable of spreading to parts all over the body, that it is capable of persisting all over the, over the body. In one case, they found genetic material from the virus had persisted for 200 days. And in another... An individual that died relatively early, within two weeks of their initial illness, who were able to culture live virus in the brain. He says you can only take so much from this study. After all, it wasn't focused on long COVID, and the people tended to be older and sicker. But Sherto says their findings do provide strong biological plausibility that viral reservoirs may play a role. So where does all of this evidence leave us in the hunt to uncover the roots of long COVID? Microbiologist Amy Proal sums it up this way. No one thinks that every long COVID patient has the exact same thing happening. But we do think that of the research that has come out recently, that reservoir of the virus in tissue ranks at the top of what might be happening to a good number of patients. Proal is president of the nonprofit PolyBio Research Foundation, which is working with scientists to advance this theory of viral persistence. Does it persist more in certain body sites over others? If it does persist in one body site, does it have a different mechanism of how it sticks around there? Like all these nuances of how it's sticking around, we need further research on. Mohammed Abdul Mohsen at the Wistar Institute says scientists now need to draw a clear line from viral reservoirs to the long COVID symptoms. He says it's possible the body's immune response to the virus or parts of the virus is behind some symptoms. A chronic reaction to something could lead to immune dysfunction and inflammation. Anything happening in a long period of time can cause our immune system to be, quote, exhausted and dysfunctional. 
Now, there are many theories about what's contributing to long COVID. For example, Abdul Mohsen wants to know if viral reservoirs in the gut are responsible for bacteria and fungi leaking into the bloodstream. Scientists are also looking at the role of autoimmunity or damaged tissue or tiny blood clots. The list goes on. Abdul Mohsen says it's important to realize that some of these theories are not mutually exclusive. Each one of them could happen independently and can lead to a problem to our immune system, but they can all lead to each other. Figuring out which treatments work for long COVID can also help untangle what's going on here. There's keen interest in using antivirals like the COVID drug Paxlovid because it might help extinguish any residual virus. A trial at Stanford expects to have results on that later this year. But some people aren't waiting for that data. I did see some uh, dramatic benefit. Scott LaDuke has dealt with long COVID since early in the pandemic. About three months ago, he found a doctor who was willing to prescribe him Paxlovid for 15 days. All of a sudden, he was able to go for longer walks. I was starting to push myself a little bit. I was actually starting to introduce some light jogging. After struggling for so long, he says it was euphoric. I truly felt well that I was almost back to my previous self. It didn't entirely last, though. Within a few weeks, LeDuc found himself backsliding. But he says the medication did give him a new, improved baseline. And it also gave him something else, a bit of hope. Will Stone, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, the White House plan to keep America's two biggest reservoirs from falling too low to generate electricity or deliver drinking water. And on the show this morning, the Biden administration's proposal to regulate vehicle emissions and how that could give a boost to electric cars and trucks. Listen to Violation. It's a new podcast from WBUR in partnership with The Marshall Project. It's a story about two families and a crime that's bound them together for decades. You can listen to Violation wherever you get your podcasts. It's 7.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Gentle Giant Moving and Storage Company, offering professional, local, long-distance, office, and piano moving with 23 locations nationwide. GentleGiant.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The chief medical officer at University of Louisville Health is calling on lawmakers at the federal, state, and local levels to do something to try to curb gun violence in the U.S. For 15 years, I've cared for victims of violence and gunshot wounds. And people say I'm tired. It's more than tired. I'm weary. That's Dr. Jason Smith speaking a day after a gunman killed five people and wounded more than a half dozen others at the old National Bank building in Louisville. The gunman was a bank employee who was killed by responding police. The Biden administration is proposing stricter limits on vehicle emissions. The changes announced today by the EPA would require up to two-thirds of new vehicles sold in the U.S. to be electric by 2032. Here's NPR's Camila Dominoski. 
These are proposed tailpipe emissions standards. And these tailpipe emissions include both pollution, like smog, right? This stuff that makes people sick and greenhouse gases. Transportation is the single biggest source of carbon dioxide emissions in the US, which is fueling catastrophic climate change. So these are regulations that cover both of these things and they are about to get under this proposal significantly stricter. Wall Street futures are higher this morning. Dow futures are up 77 points. This is NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. A coalition of labor and community groups is raising concerns about the proposed tax breaks unveiled by Massachusetts House lawmakers yesterday. Their package calls for a lower capital gains tax and a higher threshold for the estate tax. Raise Up Massachusetts is the group that led the campaign for an additional tax on incomes over $1 million. Andrew Fartinano is a spokesperson for the coalition. Last year, we passed the fair share amendment, so they would have the money to invest in solutions to these problems that have been facing us for years. We shouldn't turn around and give that money back to the ultra-rich. House Speaker Ron Mariano says the tax package will help people in all income brackets. Liquor stores on the Vineyard will soon be banned from selling pocket-sized bottles of alcohol. The Vineyard Gazette reports that town meeting voters in Edgartown and Oak Bluffs last night approved a ban on the single-serve bottles. The ban's expected to take effect next year. Bans are already in place in Falmouth and Nantucket and one is under consideration in Boston. This week's warm weather has some people eager to get out on their boats, but even though temperatures may hit the 80s this week, the water temperatures can still be in the 40s. Lieutenant Corey Morello with the Coast Guard says if you fall into the water at this time of year, hypothermia can set in within 15 minutes. And what's the initial reaction when you fall into cold water, right? You go, you breathe in. And what happens out on the ocean is you inhale water. And so that sets you into this panic mode that also makes it harder for you to remain calm and increase your chances of survival. He stresses the importance of wearing a life vest when on a boat. And he says the Coast Guard's northeast region saw a 30 percent jump in boating fatalities last year from the year before. The time is 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. In sports, Bruins now own the record. For the most points in an NHL season, they broke that record last night with a 5-2 win over the Washington Capitals. The the Bees will visit Montreal tomorrow in their last game before the playoffs. Red Sox lost to Tampa Bay 7-2 in St. Pete last night. The Sox and Rays play again tonight. And we now know that the Celtics will play the Atlanta Hawks in the first round of the playoffs. That series begins at the Garden on Saturday. In our forecast, it is warm out there this morning. Partly sunny skies today with temperatures in the 70s, slightly cooler on the Cape today. There will be another red flag warning posted today because dry conditions could lead to brush fires. Tonight, it'll be partly cloudy with lows in the 50s. Sunshine tomorrow, highs near 80 degrees and sunny on Friday with temperatures in the 80s. It is 65 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. 
Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from BritBox with Sister Boniface Mysteries, brilliant crime-solving nun Sister Boniface returns to solve curious cases in this Father Brown spin-off. Available to stream at BritBox.com NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Michelle Martin. The Biden administration is calling the Colorado River mega drought one of the nation's biggest challenges. So the White House has unveiled an emergency plan to save the country's two largest reservoirs from falling too low to generate electricity and deliver drinking water to cities. NPR's Kirk Sigler brings us the details. This emergency drought plan, now up for public comment, could allow the White House to force large mandatory water cuts across Arizona, California, and Nevada, even among water users who hold senior rights to take all they're legally entitled to from the shrinking river. The Deputy Secretary of Interior, Tommy Boudreau, chose one of the most alarming but fitting backdrops in the region right now to deliver the news. If you look out the window uh, on this setting, you see the water intakes for Hoover Dam. And the nation's Uh, largest reservoir behind the Hoover Dam, Lake Mead, is so low it's perilously close to what's called Deadpool. That's when hydropower would be cut off to millions of Westerners and no water would flow below those bare, exposed intakes to cities or farms where a lot of the nation's produce is grown. We're in the third decade of a historic drought that has caused conditions that the people who built this system would not have imagined. Even 100 years ago, though, when the Colorado was first dammed and diverted on an industrial scale, there were warnings that its water was way overpromised. But climate change and the Southwest now being as dry as it's been in 1,200 years appears to finally be forcing a reckoning. This draft plan's release comes as the seven states that rely on the Colorado have so far failed to come up with their own voluntary agreement to cut water. Bureau of Reclamation Commissioner Camille Tootin told reporters there has to be sacrifice in this crisis. Fundamentally, it is one community comprised of 40 million people and landscapes that need us to get this right. There are actual examples lately of compromises being brokered to save the river, from farmers with senior water rights being paid to not plant crops, to cities and tribes volunteering to keep some of their water in Lake Mead. It's good, Tosh. Just a few days ago in Phoenix, White House officials joined with Governor Stephen Rowe Lewis of the Gila River Indian community. The tribe has agreed to keep a huge amount of its water in Lake Mead, raising the reservoir by up to two feet in exchange for help modernizing its irrigation and water recycling. We we were historically excluded from the table. Now Now we're being key players. Well, the hope here is that more compromises like this will be made in order to avoid the mandatory cuts the government's new plan could allow. Cuts could bring prolonged legal challenges from some of the river's oldest and first users, even as the Colorado itself continues to shrink. Kirk Sigler, NPR News.
In Tunisia, police are forcibly removing black migrants from homeless encampments in the country's capital. It's the latest development in President Kais Saied's crackdown on migrants from sub-Saharan Africa. Saied made anti-black and xenophobic remarks back in February, which prompted mob violence and evictions. Black migrants, students, asylum seekers are now living in fear. This as police have randomly detained and deported scores of people. For more on this, we turn to Monica Marks. She's a professor at NYU Abu Dhabi and has been following the situation in Tunisia. Good morning, Monica, and thanks for being on the program. Good morning. Thanks for covering this. So you've been speaking with some of the migrants in Tunis who've been evicted and are now living on the streets. What have they told you? They've told me that they fled anti-black racist pogroms, mob violence mm. uh, that included stabbings, thefts of their money and, and meager possessions, their phones, and forced evictions from their homes after President Kais Saied of Tunisia, um, who has become a, a new autocrat in the Arab Spring's first and, and only um, democracy. Uh, issued this February 21st speech that you mentioned. Um, In that speech, he argued that um, black Africans were settler colonizing Tunisia, and he drew on a racist conspiracy theory that argued Europe and America are using black Africans to colonize Tunisia, just like they claim those countries, those continents, used Jews to colonize Palestine. Mm. So the president really elevated this racist language, and it rendered hundreds, if not thousands, of black people in Tunisia homeless overnight. So they've been really struggling. Why did the president invoke this racist conspiracy theory, frankly, that we've been seeing used by white supremacists in the West, the same type of language? That's right. It's it's a local version of the Great Replacement Theory. Um, probably a combination of two reasons. First, he's been on a march towards dictatorial repression since making a self-coup um, in which he closed the democratically elected parliament in July of 2021, um, and he's been looking for scapegoats. So at the same time that he made this speech against black Africans, he was also creating dozens of political prisoners in Tunisia. Mm. Um, So he's been looking for scapegoats in the Tunisian political class and amongst the most vulnerable migrants and refugees in the country. I think the second reason is that he seems to honestly believe a lot of this stuff. Um, He's a deeply conspiratorial thinker. He's very erratic, very... Um, unstable and esoteric in his thinking. And he tends to be most closely associated with very conspiratorial ideologues who get a lot of their ideas from the darkest corners of Facebook, which is very poorly monitored and regulated in Tunisia. Now, his racist comments uh, cause international outcry, rebukes. Amnesty International has called on the president to retract his comments, to stem the violence. Any sign that he'll backtrack, that he'll try to stop this? So fortunately, he hasn't made more of these pronouncements since the February 21st speech, and his government seems to be trying to backtrack um, on some of these comments, although they're not apologizing for them outright or rolling back the policy. But vulnerable migrants and UNHCR-certified refugees are still being caught in the crossfire. There's a group of about 100 that have been camping homeless for safety and protection in front of the United Nations Refugee Agency's headquarters in Tunis. Um, Nobody has been able to provide them with shelter. Landlords in Tunisia are afraid to rent to them because of the president's speech. Um, Tunisians and foreigners, many of them have been afraid to deliver food 
tents and other essentials to these people because mm. they're being stopped and interrogated at police checkpoints. So we still see the Tunisian security apparatus working to target not just the migrants and card-carrying refugees, but anybody who's trying to help them. And we haven't seen a vocal response against these policies yet from the IOM or UNHCR, the United Nations organizations, to the extent that these organizations are actually able to concretely help these people, which is why we saw an escalation yesterday between this group of homeless people who are frankly desperate and out of options and the police. Monica Marks is a professor at NYU Abu Dhabi. Thank you, Monica. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, 10 years after the Boston Marathon bombings, we talk about some of the mental health effects. And in the next hour of our program, a look at some of the reasons behind bank runs. Our weather forecast calling for partly sunny skies today, and it is warm out there this morning. Temperature is getting into the 70s today. It's about 65 degrees right now. There will be another red flag warning posted today because of dry conditions that could lead to brush fires. Tonight, partly cloudy. Temperatures in the 50s. Sunshine tomorrow. Highs near 80 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. And BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. The former Sheridan Boston Hotel in Copley Square could soon be home for hundreds of college students. The company that bought the hotel filed plans with the Boston Planning and Development Agency to convert the building's South Tower into dormitories. That would house more than 850 students from Northeastern, and the building's North Tower would remain a hotel. New Hampshire Governor Republican Chris Sununu is taking executive action to discourage the state from making investments based on environmental, social, and governance factors. As Josh Rogers reports, so-called ESG investing has become a target for Republicans in state houses across the country. Sununu says his executive order prioritizes achieving the highest investment returns. It comes almost a month after he joined 18 GOP governors in announcing their intent to leverage state pension funds to ensure corporations are, quote, focused on maximizing shareholder value rather than the proliferation of woke ideology. Sununu's order directs executive branch agencies and the state treasury to not place state funds in investment accounts solely based on ESG criteria. The order also encourages the state retirement system, which manages almost $12 billion, to adhere to its fiduciary duty to obtain the highest return. A spokesman for the retirement system says it's already meeting that standard. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Josh Rogers in Concord. The time is 7.45. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash banking for business. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. 
You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. The 2013 Boston Marathon bombings are seared into people's memories. Manya Chalinsky was in the bleachers at the finish line. I was standing there looking, I think, directly ahead, and a bomb exploded across the street from me. I don't know how I knew, but I knew it was a bomb. And I was frozen in place. Chalinsky wasn't physically hurt. She and her friends made it through the chaos. They didn't really understand what had just happened, and they all just went home. Chalinsky realized something was wrong the next day when she went to work and took a conference call. In the middle of the call, I smelled the bomb, and I reacted the way that I reacted the day before, which was I was frozen in place. Something in my brain clicked. Okay, I'm looking outside the door of my office. There is no smoke. I don't think it's happening again. For months, Chalinsky would sometimes smell explosives or even see destruction that hadn't really happened. She was not functioning well. I had trouble taking care of myself, trouble eating, trouble sleeping. When I did sleep, I had nightmares. Eventually, Chalinsky was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Her brain was stuck in danger mode. Dr. Alicia Morland-Capuya is director of the Institute for Trauma-Informed Systems Change at McLean Hospital. She says fear is a survival mechanism, and the brain stores frightening memories to remind us to avoid future similar situations. But problems can arise when that mechanism doesn't shut off. We're not designed to be under chronic stages of stress and or fear when it doesn't turn off and it starts to get in the way of our ability to function and to do everyday life. That's when we're starting to kind of move or brush up against the edges of a post-traumatic, a more chronic process that, that would really benefit from some additional expert support. The decade of research since the bombing suggests that about half of all U.S. residents have experienced a trauma in their lives, and the psychological effects from mass disasters are a major public health concern. Boston University School of Public Health Dean Dr. Sandro Galea says there are many victims of mass tragedies beyond those physically hurt. Given any traumatic, large-scale traumatic event, there are individuals who are directly experiencing the trauma and many others around them who also experience a traumatic event, which means there are more people who are indirectly affected than those who are directly affected. Even people outside of Massachusetts were traumatized by the bombings, according to researchers. Roxanne Cohen-Silver, a professor at the University of California at Irvine, says it was the first U.S. tragedy where graphic images were widely disseminated on social media without editorial oversight. Her studies found that people just repeatedly seeing the images online suffered mental distress. We actually have seen a cycle in which people engage in a lot of media is associated with stress and anxiety and worry, which then they're sensitized and are sort of drawn to the next story. And that is a cycle from which it's very difficult to break. Cohen Silver says this weekend's anniversary could be a trigger for many people. Her advice is to stay away from graphic images and focus on positive things. She says while the country is more sensitive to mental health now compared to 10 years ago, the attention often centers on those who were physically hurt. There is clearly a, a focus that doesn't also simultaneously say, let's make sure that the people who were 
at the finish line who witnessed this tragedy are also taken care of, even though they left with four limbs. For Manya Chalinsky, she says she's in a better place now, thanks to years of therapy and a support group for those who have experienced terrorist attacks. She's also become what she calls an accidental advocate. Because Chalinsky says she had little guidance on how to get help, she's urging officials to provide more support to people whose injuries from mass tragedies aren't visible. I don't want this to happen to anybody else. I want the next time something big happens that there will be mental health support and there will be validation for the real distress that these kind of events can cause people. Chalinsky worked with Congresswoman Ayanna Presley on legislation that expands federal mental health resources to survivors of crises that are declared federal emergencies. President Biden signed that bill into law in December. All this week on Morning Edition, we're hearing from survivors of the marathon bombings about moments of joy they've experienced in the last decade. This morning, we're hearing from Roseanne Sedoya Materia, reflecting on the connections she's made. Really just having the people that I have in my life at this point in time, uh, and that goes from like all the new people that I've met along the way over the last 10 years. you know, mostly survivors that really stepped up to be there in the, in the early moments in 2013 uh, to today. And, you know, so many people come to mind in regards to other organizations, you know, people that work for other organizations like Semper by America's Fund. Some of their, you know, people that were there from day one to show us that, you know, we would be okay eventually. And really, a lot of them have stuck by it me, my husband, other survivors, and have really become more family than than anything else. And uh, that goes for some of the other amputee survivors, too, where I just really can't imagine life these days without them and, and, you know, to be there for each other when and if needed. That was marathon bombing survivor Roseanne Sedoya Materia. Join us for more coverage on the 10 years since the attacks here on 90.9 WBUR or by visiting WBUR.org. Coming up at 845, we take a look at whether the security measures put in place in the last decade have made us safer. Coming up on WBUR's Morning Edition, the legal battle over the abortion pill mefepristone and how it might affect the drug market in the U.S. and beyond. And in about 15 minutes on the show, a kindergarten class in Ukraine where families scattered because of the war with Russia, those families are now considering how to deal with their children's trauma. It's 7.53. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Chapel Hill Chauncey Hall School in Waltham, Mass. For nearly 200 years, day and boarding students have achieved their best at CHCH. And next year, they will be opening doors and welcoming students to the new Chapel Hill Chauncey Hall Middle School. Learn more at their open house on April 23rd. chch.org slash open house.
Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with the Morning Edition. Mary Louise Kelly from All Things Considered. And I'm Lisa Mullins at WBUR. You know, my favorite car ever was my parents' Chevrolet Impala. My favorite all-time car was a little red Mini. My parents' red VW Bug painted white to make it look bigger. I don't know where that car is today, but I do know that an old car can be really valuable. Favorite or not, your current car can be turned into All Things Considered. It can be turned into Morning Edition. Go to WBUR.org. Here are some of the stories we're following on WBUR this morning. President Biden is in Northern Ireland today to mark the 25th anniversary of a peace deal that helped bring an end to the violence of the Troubles. Also, a new Environmental Protection Agency plan that's designed to cut carbon emissions and boost sales of electric vehicles. And in Boston today, Mayor Michelle Wu unveils her $4 billion budget proposal for the city. We'll have more on the top stories of the day in about 10 10 minutes. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR or on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include MIT Museum with captivating exhibitions and dynamic programming that turn MIT inside out. Curious what the buzz is about? Plan your visit today. In our forecast, partly sunny today, highs in the 70s, 65 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Michelle Martin. As we've been following the legal battle over the abortion pill, Mifepristone, we've heard from activists and political leaders with different perspectives on abortion per se. But now we're starting to hear from people in the pharmaceutical industry. Hundreds of executives and investors recently issued an open letter decrying the Texas federal judge's order removing FDA approval from the drug. To hear more about these concerns, we called Amit Sarpatwari, the assistant director director of the Program on Regulation, Therapeutics, and Law at Harvard Medical School. Good morning. Good morning. So what are the concerns you're hearing from the industry about this effort to remove the FDA's approval of mifepristone, and do you share them? So uh, I think that the industry is very concerned about uh, the implications of this ruling because it effectively inserts the judiciary into uh, the drug approval process. And uh, this is a drug that's been on the market and has been safely and effectively used for over 23 years. And industry members are are wondering, well, if a judge can do that, what else uh, can't uh, a judge, perhaps with an ax to grind, do? And so you have executives at over more than 500 pharmaceutical companies calling out uh, the judge for having no scientific training, fundamentally undermining the bipartisan authority granted by Congress to the FDA. You've got another trade organization, Bio, uh, calling out the ruling, saying that the court has badly misapplied governing drug approval laws. And uh, you also have the trade organization Pharma uh, referring and reinforcing the importance of the FDA as the gold standard for determining whether a drug is safe and effective. And I do share all these concerns. Um, uh, The question is really what would be off the table from relitigating? Yeah, can I, can I just jump in here and, and just ask, you know, one can make an argument that medical care in the United States is already a legal and political issue if you consider which procedures are covered, uh, how care is paid for, what kinds of patient concerns are prioritized. There's always been lobbying and public, pres- pre- public pressure, you know, applied to different aspects of medical care. How, how is this different? 
This is different because it's upstream, and this concerns the regulation of a medical product, not so much the practice of medicine. And this is the first time that we've seen a judge uh, take a drug off the market without the backing of FDA uh, or the manufacturer itself. And so the worry here is that even before we get to the downstream sort of political and coverage decisions that you're talking about, uh, we've already uh, taken the drug off the market. And before we let you go as briefly as you can, what, what is next for the industry? Do you envision them taking more aggressive steps here? What might they do? Could you, in terms of, uh, are you talking about the industry or are you we talking really, about the judiciary? The, the industry. I was talking about the industry, but sadly Understood. we don't have time to, to really amplify your answer. So I'm going to just have to thank you for your insights so far. That's Amit Sarapatwari of Harvard Medical School. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Zoo what makes you happy. Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham. ZooNewEngland.org. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Biden administration is expected to propose ambitious climate rules with two plans to boost the use of electric vehicles. It's Wednesday, April 12th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, residents of one of California's largest homeless camps are hesitant to leave, even though the city is offering temporary housing. None of us know where we're going to be going. And it's almost like, what's the use? Because they're just going to come and clear out that spot, too. Also this hour, former Boston Police Commissioner Ed Davis on the marathon bombings and whether we're safer today. We improve every year as far as our ability to understand the threat. Uh, but the threat morphs every year. And now the threat seems to be more domestic. Forecast says sunny today, highs in the 70s, even warmer later this week. It's 8.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden will give a speech this hour in Belfast, Northern Ireland. He's helping commemorate the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Accords that helped end decades of sectarian violence. Biden will then depart for the neighboring Republic of Ireland. We'll get the latest reading on consumer prices from the Labor Department this morning. NPR's Scott Horsley reports it's expected to show inflation has come down in recent months, but is still too high for comfort. Forecasters think today's report will show an annual inflation rate of just over 5% in March. That would be an improvement from 6% in February and more than 9% last summer. But prices are still climbing well above the 2% range that Americans were used to before the pandemic and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. While earlier price increases were largely driven by the cost of goods, the most worrisome element in today's inflation is high-priced services, such as travel and entertainment. The Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates aggressively in an effort to curb inflation, and another rate hike is expected next month. The Fed also has to weigh the effects of reduced bank lending after the sudden collapse of two regional banks last month. Scott Horsley, NPR News, 
Washington. The EPA is proposing new standards that would require automakers to build more electric vehicles a lot faster. The standards set strong pollution limits for vehicles. The only way for automakers to meet these pollution limits is to build EVs more quickly. That could mean that two-thirds of new vehicles sold in the U.S. could be electric in less than a decade. Lawmakers from both parties are demanding answers after sensitive documents leaked online, highlighting Russia's invasion of Ukraine. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the incident has raised concerns about national security. The leak, which surfaced on social media, has prompted an investigation by the Justice Department and the Pentagon. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is requesting classified briefings on the situation after Congress returns from its recess next week. The leaders of the House Intelligence Committee say they also expect to be briefed as more information becomes available. Top administration officials say they're assessing the scope and scale of the leak and working around the clock to determine its origin. The White House says President Biden was made aware of the breach last week and continues to be briefed. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The city of Louisville has released body camera footage of the deadly shooting at a downtown bank on Monday. Five people were killed and more than half a dozen others were wounded. Louisville Deputy Police Chief Paul Humphrey lauded the courage of the responding officers as shown in the recording. You can see the tension in, in that video. Uh, you can understand the stress that those officers are going through. Um, response wasn't perfect, but it was exactly the response we needed. An officer shot and killed the gunman at the scene. On Wall Street and pre-market trading, stocks are trading higher. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu unveils her $4.2 billion budget proposal today. The plan includes 7 percent more spending compared to the year before. The biggest chunk of money will go to public education, including pre-kindergarten. Other key spending areas include climate change resiliency and public health. Boston has bid farewell to Mel King. The civil rights leader and state representative died last month. As WBUR's Max Larkin reports, politicians and neighbors thanked King's family during his funeral yesterday. During a four-hour funeral service, leader after elected leader spoke of the profound influence that Mel King, the thinker, had on their lives and political careers. But perhaps the most moving tributes came from King's multi-generational family. Xavier Ringer is King's granddaughter. If it was up to me, I'd probably keep him to myself. But one of the grandest lessons his life has taught me is that we are not in possession of anyone. And to love is to let our loved ones live their purpose unapologetically. King passed away on March 28th at age 94. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. An effort to increase diversity of Massachusetts teachers is facing some criticism because it might weaken job security for veteran teachers. A bill would give school leaders the ability to protect less experienced teachers from layoffs if they're part of an underrepresented group. Current state law requires teachers with less service to be laid off first. Spring is here in Massachusetts, and that means it's not uncommon common to find baby deer, rabbits, or birds in your yard, but experts say don't feed or touch them and do not try to make them pets. Martin Fian is a biologist at Mass Wildlife. We've had a disturbing trend in the last few years, particularly with white-tailed deer fawns. 
with people taking them captive. Um, and it's led to some pretty tragic outcomes. And uh, we just don't want to see those tragic cases to continue. Fian says to call Mass Wildlife if you think an animal is sick or hurt before you interact with it. The time is six minutes past eight. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms Custom Builders, building healthy, high-performance homes for families and for the future. Supporting Youth Enrichment Services, April 20th Black Diamond Gala, and their mission to use outdoor experiences to prepare Boston youth to meet life's challenges. YesKids.org slash gala and ThoughtForms-Corp.com. In sports, Bruins broke the record last night for most points in a season. They beat the Washington Capitals 5-2 to at the Garden. The Bees will visit Montreal tomorrow. Red Sox lost to the Tampa Bay Rays 7-2 to in Florida last night. The two teams meet again tonight. In our weather forecast, it is nice out there this morning. Partly sunny today. Temperatures in the low 70s. Cooler on the Cape. Another red flag warning will be posted today because of dry conditions that could lead to brush fires. Tonight, partly cloudy. Lows in the 50s. Sunshine tomorrow. Highs near 80 degrees. It is 65 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Layla Falding. We have a story now about love and loss amid the war in Ukraine. A pair of six-year-old friends separated by the Russian invasion and now living an ocean apart. NPR's Alyssa Nadworny spent months following their story. The two friends met in Irina Sahan's bright green kindergarten class in the northeast Ukrainian city of Kharkiv. This is young love, Irina says, pointing to a yearbook photo where two blonde children are holding hands, smiling at the camera. Daniel Bizev and Aurora Demchenko. Aurora, headstrong with a big personality. Daniel, a good listener. They'd sit next to each other and giggle, sometimes distracting the other students. In the yellow yearbook Arena holds on her lap, they're in every photo together. That friendship, Arena's whole kindergarten class, came to an abrupt stop when Russia invaded Ukraine last February. Most of Arena's students are now scattered across Ukraine and the world. Those two best friends, Daniel and Aurora, they'd gone the farthest from home and from each other. Aurora in Spain and Daniel in America. I had so many questions. Were they still in touch? Did they remember each other? Had they made new friends? It's our pleasure to welcome you to Westchester County. Producer Lauren Magaki and I visited Daniel first. He now lives with his parents and two brothers in a white two-story house about an hour from New York City. A little bit different in Ukraine because, like, in Ukraine, you usually live in an apartment, but there's no upstairs. In the six months Daniel's been in the States, his English has flourished. He'd started learning years ago. His parents, mom Christina and dad Yevgeny, had been planning to emigrate to the U.S. since before Daniel was born. When the war happened, they moved up their timeline. Because we wanted to save our lives and the lives of uh, our children. So for us, it was obvious to leave. 
The house is pretty empty. They didn't take much with them. And Daniel's been missing his bedroom back in Kharkiv. There were so many books, so many stories. He's been making his own hand-drawn picture books to fill the space. This book is about monsters scared of the night. <laughs> he does have one special book he wants to show us. This is me, and this is me, and this is me. It's a version of that yearbook Irina Sahan showed us in Kharkiv. His mom got digital proofs and printed the book. <laughs> Where's Aurora? He points to a picture of the two of them. They're holding a basket together, smiling at each other. What's happening in that photo? Just standing next. Just standing next to her, huh? Yeah. What do you remember about her? Mm, she likes to play soccer. Danielle loves her because uh, she's not so girlish. She likes to play with cars. Yeah. She... His mom, Christina, pulls out her phone and scrolls to a video yeah. Daniel sent Aurora last mm, summer. Yeah, here it is. He says he misses her very much and please call me, I want to see you, kisses for you. So is he still kind of hung up on her? I think so, yes, because he has a bear, big bear. It's a stuffed bear that he sleeps with each night. He says, I pretend that it's Aurora and I just hug her and I'm like, okay, so, yeah, it's, it's hard. I just couldn't imagine what's going on in his head and in his, like, soul. Christina and her husband, they're not sure exactly how to handle this. Daniel hasn't seen Aurora in a year, and now they live on different continents. Should we keep talking about her or just quit this um, topic at all? Aurora and her family... They never answered that video message Daniel sent. Was it too painful to stay in touch? Or had they just gotten busy adjusting to life in a new country? Nearly 4,000 miles away in Valencia, Spain, Aurora Demchenko now lives in a high-rise apartment with her parents and her three energetic brothers. When we meet Aurora, we were expecting that big personality her Kharkiv teacher described. But instead, she's shy and timid. I'm Alyssa. What's your name? Aurora. Life right now, it's a bit overwhelming. She's learning English at school and in the afternoons. She takes Zoom lessons in Ukrainian and Spanish. The apartment has a familiar emptiness, like Daniel's home. But there are a few reminders of Kharkiv, a painting in Ukrainian colors, and that yellow yearbook from the kindergarten. Aurora and her mom, Marina, spread out on the bed and leaf through the book. A friend of the kindergarten teacher, Irina Sahan, had brought it to Spain. The family drove two hours just to pick it up. As they look through, Marina points out pictures of Aurora and Daniel. Do you remember you always saved a seat for him? No, I don't remember, Aurora says. You were inseparable. I don't remember, Aurora says. Remember when your teacher would scold you for being too silly? Aurora shakes her head. No, Aurora repeats, it didn't happen. You have forgotten about this, haven't you, Marina says. She's surprised how much Aurora insists she doesn't remember. 
But research shows blocking out painful memories is one of the ways the brain tries to cope with trauma. <laughs> Over homemade bowls of rizolnik, a dill, and pickle soup, the family tells us about when they first came to Valencia. Like many Ukrainian refugees, they've been granted temporary protection to live in Europe. Aurora's dad, Alex, remembers it was during Las Fallas, Valencia's week-long fire festival filled with loud music, parties, and fireworks in the street. Bah, 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 and and it's, it's happened in the city center. Aurora, who had just fled different types of explosions, asked her parents, has the war come to Spain? Aurora, it's, it's bombing. We're going to basement. With so much change and uncertainty, the family has clung to reminders of home, like that yearbook, and a single fork her 13-year-old brother Sasha brought from their kitchen in Kharkiv. Like, accidentally. Because like I use the same um, backpack for school, so like I accidentally took this in my bag. <laughs> now everyone fights yeah. over it. For much of our visit, Aurora is glued to her big brother Sasha's side. I joined them on the floor playing Legos. Did you remember your classroom? Yes. While we build, I show Aurora photos of us visiting her kindergarten classroom here. in Kharkiv. This is a baby school. <laughs> this is a baby class. I try again to ask about Daniel, showing her photos of our trip to New York. Oh, I know that Daniel is in the U.S., she exclaims in Russian. He's a good artist, too, just like you. Yes. We scroll to a photo of Daniel's homemade book about monsters. I make two books. You did? Yeah. But those books are still in Kharkiv, she says, her eyes drifting, losing interest. Sasha leans over and whispers to her. Would you like to meet up with Daniel? Aurora is clearly uncomfortable, mumbling first in Russian, and then she stands up and storms off. I turn to translator Hanna Palmarenko. When he asks about Daniel, that's all. The interview's over. Yes. I ask Sasha what he thinks is going on. I don't know, maybe because of the problems within Ukraine, maybe. Yeah, you think there's like a sadness? Yes. Maybe she thinks that she will not see any one of them. What is clear is that Aurora is processing all this in a very different way than Daniel, who's been going to sleep each night thinking of Aurora. After Spain, we wanted to check back in on Daniel. I just got a text message from Christina, Daniel's mom. Our visit in November, where we looked through the yearbook with him, it left him in tears for days. She says, happy to have you visit us, but please don't remind Daniel about Aurora. When we arrive in early February, it's just before dinner time, and Daniel and his brother Adam are playing in the living room. Their littlest brother Leo runs around in his diaper. Daniel's been taking breakdancing lessons after school and is demonstrating a headstand. That's how it makes it spin. These last several months, they've been filled with activities like breakdancing and soccer and swimming. As I'm interviewing Daniel, his dad arrives home from working in New York City, and he heads straight to me. Uh, please don't, uh, don't mention, yeah. you, you know. He's making sure I got Christina's message. Aurora, the kindergarten, it's off the table. He's uh, still probably in love with her. Since we visited in November, Christina sought out a psychologist at an event for Ukrainian refugees. So I asked about the situation of Aurora. And she said that it's fine to talk when he, like, set up 
uh, this conversation, not you. Just don't, don't remind him about that. And so they've been avoiding it, and we do too. Instead, we talk about football. Daniel is now a Bills fan. Let's see. I think I know this. And he's gotten some new books in Russian and Ukrainian to fill those empty shelves. Oh my goodness. That looks like so creepy. What does it say? Oh, I, I can't read in Russian and Ukrainian. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of weird. This new strategy, staying busy, Christina says it's actually been working. It took time for him to understand that we are not going to see each other for a while. Daniel's really happy, she tells me a number of times. Now he talks about her like less and less. Maybe someday, she hopes, Daniel and Aurora will be reunited. Maybe when the war in Ukraine is over and they can share their new lives and new friends and neither of them will be sad. Alyssa Nadworny, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, residents of one of California's largest homeless camps are hesitant to leave, even though the city is offering temporary housing. And in about 25 minutes, a conversation with the man who played a key role during the Boston Marathon bombings, former police commissioner Ed Davis. Here he is that day almost 10 years ago. Would you notify all the command officers that uh, the command post is going to be set up at the Western Hotel uh, in Copley Square, the Western Hotel. We're securing a room in there for all the command officers. We'll talk with Davis about how security protocols have changed since the bombings. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Tanglewood and the Boston Symphony Orchestra. A trip to Tanglewood this summer opens a world of possibilities. Tickets on sale at bso.org slash Tanglewood. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. I'm Steve Inskeep. Around the world, our co-host Leila Fadel has been reporting from Ukraine. In your community, workers are unionizing in fields where they haven't always had a big presence. And farther afield, think really far, like Six, out of this world. Five, and liftoff of Artemis One. Morning Edition from NPR News takes you wherever the story is. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. And this note now, today's the anniversary of Big Wind Day at Mount Washington in New Hampshire. Observers at the weather station there recorded a world record wind speed of 231 miles per hour on this day 89 years ago. The overall record has since been broken, but that Mount Washington gust still stands as the fastest wind speed ever recorded by a staffed weather station. Forecast today, not too windy. It'll be partly sunny and warm. Temperatures in the low 70s in greater Boston in the 60s on the Cape. Tonight, a few clouds, lows in the 50s and sunny and even warmer. Tomorrow with highs near 80 degrees. It is 66 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Peacock with the new original series, Mrs. Davis, about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence, and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof, streams April 20th on Peacock. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. 
More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. Good morning. I'm Michelle Martin. The International Monetary Fund released its economic forecast for this year, and it was a little bleak. The IMF predicts very slow growth for most countries. Here in the U.S., one of the big things holding the economy back, volatility in the banking sector. In other words, the bank runs we saw last month. But what exactly causes a bank run? Here's NPR's Stacey Vanek-Smith. A few weeks ago, Ben Sand was at his home in Sydney, Australia, when he got a bad feeling. Sand is the CEO of Strong Compute, a medical imaging startup. His company kept its money at Silicon Valley Bank. He'd been reading about the bank's struggles, but he wasn't that worried. I was thinking, oh, it's SVB. Like, you know, how bad can it be? The decades-old, multi-billion-dollar bank had always been great to work with. But then a few things happened. Suddenly, sort of everything stopped working. International wires were not available. Exactly how to move money was not clear. We'd heard stories of people sending wires to other bank accounts and those bank accounts rejecting those wires. But their SVB account showing the wires had gone through and the money was somewhere. Sand called his team. We, you know, rather quickly made the assessment that it looked quite bad. And so we took action. Took action as in got on a plane that night and flew from Sydney to San Francisco, a 19-hour trip, then immediately jumped into a car and drove straight to Silicon Valley Bank's headquarters in Santa Clara. And then we went and waited outside the bank. What time did you get to the bank? Uh, Two in the morning. Other people showed up, big line formed of worried-looking customers anxious to pull their money out. Sand says he does not panic easily, but almost all of his company's money was in that bank, including its operating budget, payroll. You you start sort of doing a lot of math in your head. As dawn broke, official-looking people showed up. They were from the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, government regulators that insure banks. They told the crowd there was nothing to worry about, their money was safe, and they handed out snacks. The FDIC came out and gave us donuts. And I said, should I should I read anything into the shape of this donut and, and what's happening with that money? <laughs> that feeling in the pit of your stomach that something is wrong, that moves you to book a flight to another country or stand in line all night, we might call it a gut feeling or spidey sense or blind panic. Economists call it animal spirits. Emotions that cause people to suddenly shift from one pattern of behavior to another pattern of behavior. Ben Ho is an economist at Vassar. He's author of the book Why Trust Matters. He says animal spirits are the emotions that override rational thought and cause people to behave in unpredictable, often extreme ways. Ho says animal spirits are released when trust is broken. In the case of Silicon Valley Bank, the trust that underpins our banking system, our entire economy. I think of human history as like thousands of years of how we've learned to trust each other in ever greater ways. Ho says that ability to trust institutions, markets, banks, it's made us all infinitely wealthier. It has vastly increased our quality of life. But when that trust fails, animal spirits take over. Like in March of 2020, when investors sold off massive amounts of stock and markets lost a third of their value in one month, that was animal spirits. People getting into frantic multi-million dollar bidding wars over NFTs when they weren't even sure what they were? That was animal spirits. 
people panic buying armfuls of toilet paper? Animal spirits. What we don't know is what causes that, that switch to flip. After waiting outside of Silicon Valley Bank all night, Ben Sand finally got in front of a teller and managed to get a cashier's check for almost the entire amount in his account. But his faith was deeply shaken at that point. Everything seemed suspect. The question, you know, what, what is a cashier's check? Is it actually cash? That's what people say. But like, no, this, this thing is literally money. I feel like I could have printed this on my own printer. Like, well, is a check instructions to move money or is it the actual money? Sands eventually got that money into a larger bank that seemed safer. I think everyone's got their antennas up for exactly what's happening with the global banking system and how this is all going to turn out. Across the U.S., people have pulled hundreds of billions of dollars out of small banks in just the last few weeks. Economist Ben Ho says this is why governments have been so quick to bail out faltering banks. They're trying to calm the animal spirits. And it has worked. Of course, that could change. It's estimated nearly 200 U.S. banks are financially vulnerable right now. Stacey Vanek-Smith, NPR News. The city of Oakland is in the process of removing the last remaining residents from what was once considered Northern California's largest homeless encampment. KQED's Aaron Baldessari reports. At its height, the settlement of unhoused people at Wood Street in West Oakland stretched for more than a mile, with RVs and trailers and makeshift homes tucked underneath a freeway overpass, home to more than 300 people. Over time, people living there built it into a resource hub with a community kitchen, a free store, meeting spaces, and storage facilities. It's all just a crushed dream now. Manaz Sabiri lived there for more than five years. And I don't know, I don't know, none of us know where we're going to be going. And it's almost like, what's the use? Because they're just going to come and clear out that spot too. California's Department of Transportation cleared out the bulk of residents back in September. Now the city of Oakland is removing the 60 or so folks who remain. That's in part due to growing complaints from area business owners and neighbors. Kathy Kuhner lives not far from the Wood Street Settlement in West Oakland. She's watched the unhoused community here grow, but like a lot of people, she isn't sure what the solution is. I think we're a wealthy enough country that we can take care of people who don't have homes, but I don't think we can allow them to be in the streets, the parks, or on public or private property. The city has long planned to redevelop the lot into affordable housing with 170 condos and apartments. It got $8 million to relocate residents to a temporary shelter made up of tiny cabins. But for residents like Lamonte Ford, who lives in a trailer, going there means giving that up and getting rid of most of his belongings. I've been here 10 years. You think I can pack it up in two bags? I can't. I can't even think about packing it up in two bags. And if he goes into the tiny cabins, he says there's no guarantee he'll get into permanent housing. A city audit found fewer than a third of the people who go into this program got long-term homes. For NPR News, I'm Erin Baldessari. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, the White House declares a synthetic drug cocktail a, an, an emerging public health threat. It's 830. WBUR supporters include Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg is suing the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. Republican Jim Jordan of Ohio is investigating Bragg's office in response to the criminal charges filed against former President Donald Trump. Bragg's federal lawsuit alleges Jordan is interfering with his prosecution. Adam Classfield is managing editor of Law and Crime. Congressional committees have pretty broad discretion about what they can investigate, but what the lawsuit basically says is that it's not absolute. Glassfield was speaking to NPR's Morning Edition. President Biden's top drug control official is warning about an illegal street drug cocktail that's being designated as an emerging threat in the U.S. It's a combination of fentanyl and xylazine, a drug approved for veterinary uses more than 50 years ago. NPR's Brian Mann says xylazine is also known as Trank. Like other synthetic drugs, xylazine is super cheap for drug cartels to make. And then when it's mixed with fentanyl, it can deepen and prolong the sense of euphoria experienced by drug users. So that combination has kind of supercharged the spread of Trank. But the human toll is devastating. Addiction to this drug is really powerful. It's hard to escape. And frequent xylazine users suffer terrible wounds when they uh, inject the drug. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker in Boston. Massachusetts lawmakers take up an effort today to restore pandemic-era eviction protections. The original protections for renters expired last month. They prevent people from being evicted if they have an application in for state rental assistance. House leaders say they're including this as part of their budget, and if it's passed, the protections would go into place this summer. The Massachusetts taxpayer Foundation is praising a tax relief proposal. Massachusetts House leaders released the proposal yesterday. It calls for $650 million in tax relief in the next fiscal year, new tax credits for dependents, and a higher estate tax threshold. Taxpayer Foundation President Doug Hogate calls it a positive proposal. One of the themes we've also seen again from Governor Healy and now from the House is something that's really a collection of proposals that we've heard about before. And I think that's a good sign in terms of getting something resolved uh, in the near term. Critics say the plan will favor wealthy residents who may have to pay more because of the so-called millionaire's tax. The House plans to vote on the plan tomorrow. The MBTA says it is now the sole owner of the Wydet Circle industrial area in South Boston. That's the area that was planned to be home to a large stadium for the city's failed 2024 Summer Olympics bid. The T says the $255 million purchase will create room to increase commuter rail frequency south and west of the city. The area will also be used to store trains and to make repairs. The time is 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Muzzin Audio, offering high-fidelity FM Bluetooth audio speakers in an array of nostalgic designs and colors, available at muzzinaudio.com. In sports, the Bruins now hold the record for the most points in a season. They set the record with a 5-2 win over the Washington Capitals at the Garden last night. The Bees will wrap up their regular season in Montreal tomorrow with a chance to add two more points to that record. Red Sox lost to the undefeated Tampa Bay Rays last night. The final was 7-2, and the teams will play again tonight. And the Celtics' first-round playoff match is now set. They will face the Atlanta Hawks game 
Game 1 of that series will be at the Garden on Saturday. And in our forecast, unseasonably warm for April today, partly sunny, temperatures in the 70s. It'll be a bit cooler on the Cape today. There is another red flag warning being posted today because of the dry conditions that could lead to brush fires. Tonight, a few clouds, lows in the 50s. Tomorrow, sunshine. Highs near 80 degrees and sunny on Friday. Temperatures Friday could get into the mid-80s. 64 degrees right now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. From BrickBox with the Confessions of Franny Langton, one woman's story of courage, murder, and forbidden love in this new original drama. Available to stream at BritBox.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Michelle Martin. The U.S. government issued a grave new warning today that illegal street drugs are growing even more deadly. 100,000 people are already dying each year from drug overdoses. Now the White House says a synthetic drug cocktail of fentanyl and xylazine is poisoning even more Americans. NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann has this report. Dr. Rahul Gupta, the Biden administration's drug czar, says he's been hearing for months from experts that this combination of fentanyl and xylazine, often known on the street as Trank, is spreading fast. First seen in overdose cases in the Northeast, it's now common in the South and West. Speaking with reporters ahead of this morning's announcement, Gupta said it's time to act. This is the first time in our nation's history that a substance is being designated as an emerging threat by any administration. Gupta has been on the front line of the opioid fentanyl epidemic for decades as drug overdoses surge above 100,000 deaths a year. He says the threat that this latest mix of drugs could make things even worse is alarming. I'm deeply concerned about what is this threat means for the nation. Like other synthetic drugs, xylazine is cheap for drug cartels to make. Mixed with fentanyl, it can deepen and prolong the sense of euphoria experienced by drug users. But the human cost is grim. Gupta says federal data showed a 1,000% increase in xylazine-related deaths in the South in a single year, along with big increases in the West and Midwest. Frequent xylazine users also suffer terrible wounds when they inject the drug. People are often ending up having to either have amputations of their limbs or having deep ulcers, infection, sepsis and oftentimes are admitted to intensive care units. Dr. Stephanie Ann Deutsch is a pediatrician who treats kids exposed to drugs at the Nemours Children's Hospital in Delaware. I think it's a tremendous public health risk. Deutsch published a paper in December warning other pediatricians about her experience struggling to treat young children sickened by fentanyl and xylazine. But the children didn't respond to the traditional antidotes and in general were quite critically ill. According to Dr. Gupta, the White House will inform Congress later today of the gravity of this public health crisis and will then roll out a national strategy designed to combat the fentanyl-xylazine mixture over the next 90 days. This plan is expected to include more testing to identify where xylazine is prevalent in the drug supply, also more funding for research to find medical treatments for people affected. It's also likely the government will further regulate xylazine, which is used legally by veterinarians as an animal tranquilizer. 
Gupta says it may also make sense for Congress to increase criminal penalties as police try to crack down on drug dealers and gangs pushing this cocktail. This part of the federal response worries Maritza Perez Medina with the Drug Policy Alliance. She says growing fears about xylazine and other synthetic drugs could lead to more arrests rather than better treatment. We're really targeting people who could benefit from health services. So that's my overall concern with like the direction that the federal government is taking, specifically Congress with, you know, criminalizing these emerging substances. Synthetic drugs, including fentanyl, methamphetamines, and now xylazine have become a political flashpoint. With the Biden administration now pivoting to battle the xylazine fentanyl cocktail, experts say this is a sign of things to come with more and more of these deadly synthetic drugs expected to make their way onto American streets. Brian Mann, NPR News. In fewer than 10 years, American roadways, or at least the cars on them, may look very different. The Environmental Protection Agency is expected to announce new auto emission standards later today. They're aimed at dramatically increasing the number of electric vehicles sold in the U.S. Last year, EVs made up less than 6% of vehicle sales. These new standards could push that to as high as 67% by 2032. But some car makers say the industry just isn't ready. Michelle Krebs joins me now. She's the executive analyst at Cox Automotive. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, so first, what would these rules actually do? Uh, these rules, are, they are the strictest limits ever on auto emissions. And the whole idea behind it is to speed up our transition to EVs, mm -hmm. which uh, don't have emissions. Um, there was a voluntary goal to get to 50% by 2030. Um, that has been up to 67% yeah. by 2032. Very ambitious goals. Realistic? Is that timeline realistic, especially from the auto industry's perspective? Well, and not just the auto industry <laughs> in part. Uh, it's also the consumer part. It's yeah. enormously ambitious. You know, we've had previous mandates where, like, higher fuel economy standards and emission standards, but they were all on gasoline engines, required some tweaking. Um, this reinvents the vehicle. It reinvents how consumers interact with their vehicle. It uh, reimagines the entire industrial base. So um, this is a massive change. What would you say are the biggest challenges? Is it making the vehicles, getting people to purchase them? I mean, what are the challenges to get to that number? I think it all lies with the consumer. Mm. Uh, indeed, EVs are the fastest selling vehicle category. Last year, they were up 60% over uh, the previous year. We just put out some new numbers that in the first quarter, uh, we the U.S. industry sold 258,000. That's the highest we've ever seen. And we anticipate a million, but we sell 14, 15, 16 million vehicles per year. It's So it's only 7% of all vehicle sales. Um, and this requires a change in consumer behavior. You know, you don't just pull into a gas station and uh, top off your tank. The other big obstacle is they cost more. The average yeah. cost of an EV is $58,000 versus a still high $48,000 for a gas wow. engine vehicle. So that's hard for people. Already uh, vehicles are so expensive right now, and a lot of people plan to drive their car until it, the wheels fall off. But if the rules change, maybe that's not an option for them. 
Well, the the EPA is arguing that these standards will actually save consumers money. They're mm. saying, uh, you know, more than $9,000 over eight years by not buying gas. Um, EVs theoretically have less maintenance because they have less parts, and uh, so they'll save and repair bills. But I don't think really consumers look at it that way. Does this impact auto workers? Uh, yes. Um, we are seeing automakers uh, build new plants to assemble these vehicles and to build batteries. And it's it's a mixed bag. There will be new jobs created, but um, we could lose factory jobs because EVs require fewer people to assemble them. Michelle Krebs is the executive analyst with Cox Automotive. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, former Boston Police Commissioner Ed Davis looks back on the marathon bombings and reflects on whether we're safer today. In our weather forecast, it's warm out there this morning. It'll be partly sunny today with temperatures in the 70s, a bit cooler on the Cape. Tonight, partly cloudy with lows in the 50s. Sunshine tomorrow, highs near 80 degrees tomorrow. And on Friday, temperatures in the mid-80s. It is 65 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Our Journey with La Mer, a world premiere about ocean preservation by choreographer Nanine Linning, now through April 16th, bostonballet.org. Gas is getting more expensive for many Massachusetts drivers. AAA reports the average price of a gallon of regular is now $3.36, and that's up $0.07 cents in the last week. But the price of diesel is down $0.02 cents in the last week. It now averages four fifty-seven a gallon. The owners of Dudley Cafe in Roxbury say they have plans to open a second location in Cambridge. The new location will be on Mass Avenue between Porter and Harvard Squares, an opening date has not been announced. Franklin-based 67 Degrees Brewing is opening a seasonal beer garden at the Rentham Premium Outlets. It's the first beer garden to operate at the shopping center. The brewery previously had a beer garden outside Boston City Hall. The time is 8.45. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW and New England Innovation Academy. Featured in the Boston Globe and Fast Company. Limited space for grades 6 to 12 for fall 2023. neiacademy.org. You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. In the 10 years since the Boston Marathon bombings, former Boston Police Commissioner Ed Davis has become a national speaker on some of the strengths and weaknesses in law enforcement's response to a mass tragedy. There have been a lot of changes in security and in policing since 2013, and former Commissioner Davis joins us to talk about this. Good morning. Thanks for being with us on Morning Edition. Good morning, Deborah. My pleasure. Great to talk to you. 
Now, because you were the Boston Police Commissioner at the time, uh, you've often been asked about the city's response to the bombings, but uh, you know what they say about hindsight. So what would you say now, 10 years later, about the main strengths and maybe the biggest challenge in the 2013 response to the bombings? One of the biggest issues that I recall was the, the psychological effect it had on the uh, the victims of the incident, as well as the first responders who had to provide life-saving assistance to uh, people who were literally bleeding out on the streets of Boston. I didn't realize the impact of the psychological trauma and how that would affect my officers. We brought in psychologists and psychiatrists to, to uh, help them you know, decompress from the incident. But in the coming weeks, we found that much more serious uh, treatment was needed. We had to increase our communication with our partners at the federal and state level. We had a, a tremendous working relationship, but some things needed to be tweaked. There's been quite a bit of new technology developed over the past decade that could change the way these types of situations are handled. Do you think now, when you see some of these new tools, that it would have changed what happened in 2013? Well, it could very well have. One of the things that's been controversial is the use of facial recognition. It was in its infancy uh, when we tried it, and it didn't work. It did not turn up the suspects, but I believe now it would. Leveraging those advances when the country is under an assault and, and people's lives hang in the balance is, is critical. I remember people holding signs after the arrest of Zarnayev saying, thank you, police, or high-fiving officers. But you know, this was before Ferguson. This was before George Floyd. And there's been a marked change in the perception of law enforcement over the past 10 years. How do you think that would affect the response if a tragedy like this were to happen today? There's certainly been a sea change in people's attitudes, and deservedly so. I mean, the things that have happened to the citizens and their perception of and trust in the police have been uh, horrible. It's up to the police to reestablish the trust that we had back then. In the meantime, the solution to this is absolute transparency as quickly as possible. Also, since 2013, as a country, right, we've experienced many major tragedies and disasters, mass shootings. Do you worry that people have become maybe numb or, or complacent about safety precautions? I think, if anything, these active shooter situations that have been so prolific over the last year or two are driving people to be more concerned about that. They're not getting complacent, but I worry that they get numb to it and don't stand up and demand that, that something be done to stop it, to be quite honest with you. Do you think we're safer now than we were 10 years ago? That's a hard question. Um, I think in regard to uh, terrorist events, we are. We improve every year as far as our ability to understand the threat. Uh, but the threat morphs every year. Now the threat seems to be more domestic, and we have to adapt to that. The active shooter thing is horrible, and I don't know in that particular arena if we're safer now. I worry about that, and, and I worry about our inability as a country to deal with it. Former Boston Police Commissioner Ed Davis, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with WBUR's Morning Edition. My pleasure. Great to talk to you, Deb. Funding for WBUR Boston Marathon coverage comes from Marathon Sports. 
remembering all those affected by the bombings at the 2013 Boston Marathon. Marathonsports.com. Coming up on WBUR's Morning Edition, Russia is using drones made by Iran in its war in Ukraine. Weapons experts are turning to some unconventional methods to get them on the battlefield. It's 10 minutes before 9. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales, investing in relationships based on trust, collaboration, and shared values with nonprofit organizations and community partners, such as Eastie Farm, Zumix, and East Boston Neighborhood Health Center serving East Boston's diverse needs and vibrant culture. Being tough on China is popular with many Democrats and Republicans, but Representative Judy Chu of California worries that anti-China political rhetoric could lead to xenophobia against Asian Americans. Chinese Americans are indeed very concerned about being the next ones to be accused. Our conversation with Representative Chu on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here are some of the top stories we're following on WBUR this morning. A new report on inflation shows that prices jumped 5 percent compared to a year ago, less than expected, but still enough to lead to more interest rate hikes. Also, the Environmental Protection Agency is boosting the sale of electric vehicles by putting stricter emission standards in place for gas cars. And in Massachusetts, lawmakers take up an effort today to restore pandemic-era eviction protection. The BBC will have global headlines in 10 minutes. Stay in touch with the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app and and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Merrimack College, offering master's in education programs and credentials for teachers with a state-aligned curriculum. Online.merrimack.edu. In our forecast, partly sunny today, highs in the 70s, a bit cooler on the Cape. Cloudy tonight, lows in the 50s, and sunshine tomorrow. Highs near 80 degrees. It is 65 degrees in Boston. One way to stop drones as weapons of war is to trace all the bits inside. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by SoFi. With a SoFi high-yield savings account, members can earn more. Plus, deposits are FDIC-insured. Learn more at SoFi.com. Get your money right. SoFi Bank N.A. Member FDIC. First, the Consumer Price Index is just in. Using this March reading, inflation is running at just 5% year-over-year, down from 6% a month earlier. The bond market jumped, pulling the 10-year rate down to 3.36% now. And the Fed today will reveal more of its thinking on interest rates with the release of notes of its last policy meeting. Think about what had just happened right before the Fed's last meeting on interest rates. Regulators had closed Silicon Valley Bank after a run, and the Swiss government had hastily arranged the sale of Credit Suisse to reassure skittish investors. This meeting took place in the middle of a crisis. Ethan Harris is head of global economic research at Bank of America. And so the Fed themselves is probably quite confused about what kind of situation they're facing. The minutes of last month's meeting will give us a glimpse of how Fed officials respond to an ongoing crisis. I say glimpse because Fed minutes aren't transcripts of the meetings. They're more like cliff notes. They don't tell us who said what. It's all anonymous. That leaves Tiffany Wilding, an economist at investment managers PIMCO, scrounging around for clues. 
Usually we get words like a number of people, some officials said this, a few members pointed out that. Wilding wants to know if Fed officials think the banking crisis will do some of their work for them, as bankers make it harder to get loans. If businesses and consumers can't borrow and spend, that would tamp down inflation, just like a rate hike. So Wilding will be looking to see... How many people, you know, maybe thought that a couple of more rate hikes were appropriate versus no rate hikes. Other economists, like Lauren Goodwin at New York Life Investments, are less interested in who agrees on where interest rates should go. She's looking for signs of disagreement over interest rate policy. Fed meeting minutes tend to be an early indicator of where debates are emerging that might suggest that the path of policy ahead is a bit less certain. Goodwin says that could mean fewer rate hikes or even a pause at the Fed's meeting next month. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genser for Marketplace. Cardinal Stritch University near Milwaukee will close next month after more than 85 years, one of about a half dozen private nonprofits to go. Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes has that. Let's start with enrollment. There are more than a million fewer undergraduates now than there were in fall 2019. People who otherwise would go to college are choosing the world of work. Josh Weiner is executive director of the Aspen College Excellence Program. He points out that rising wages mean... The opportunity cost associated with going to college is greater than it used to be. Small private colleges have been feeling that. And the students who are enrolling often can't afford to pay full tuition, says Catherine Hill with the education nonprofit Ithaca SNR. So you kind of have this mismatch between the cost of these schools and the incomes of the families that are trying to send their kids on to college. The problem is going to get worse because there's going to be fewer kids full stop. By 2025, the 18-year-olds who we know exist, right, because they've been born, are going to drop off. One solution is to look elsewhere for students, including adult learners who never finish their degrees. I'm Stephanie Hughes for Marketplace. The CEO of Twitter, Elon Musk, has given a rare interview. Speaking to a colleague at the BBC, Musk acknowledged the pain's been high as he puts the social media site on a new course. He said Twitter was losing $3 billion a year with only about a billion in the bank when he took over. So that's four months to death. So this is your starting position. How would you feel? He also addresses the pressure on his other company, Tesla, when he sold Tesla shares to help with his Twitter project. We'll put up a link if you missed that Q&A on our air today. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Bitwarden, designed to offer employees secure access to the right logins from anywhere at any time and on any device. Learn more at bitwarden.com. And by Fidelity. A dedicated Fidelity advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Russia is using drones made by Iran as small guided missiles against Ukraine. Weapons experts are turning to some unconventional methods, including tearing these apart, looking for ways to interrupt the supply chain of internal components. Reporter Dina Temple-Raston, the host of the weekly Click Here podcast, has that. Damien Splitters is a kind of drone whisperer on the ground in Ukraine, and he's examining one now. In front of us is a Shahad-131 that was recovered by Ukrainian forces, and we can see the carcass right there. Splitters is an investigator at a weapons control organization called Conflict Armament Research, and he takes apart drones like the Iranian-made Shahad-131. 
It has a slow, noisy engine that's more moped than weapon of destruction. That's why Ukrainians have shot a lot of them down, and that's how they end up being dissected by Damien Spleters. Spleters photographs the drones, then traces each little component through the global supply chain, from factory to distributor to manufacturer. Every chip, every battery, every antenna speaks to him. It functions to me as a physical document. It's whole chain of custody and, you know, all the hands it went through. By identifying each and every one of the drone's pieces, he hopes to find places to create a bottleneck in the weapons supply chain. We will identify, you know, the same end users, the same distributors, and then little by little we'll uncover the acquisition networks that Russia and Iran have been using. The problem is some of these components are really common. They might also be parts used in TVs or phones or computers. So a manufacturer may not even know their chips have ended up inside a weapon. So some of these components go through China, Taiwan. This is Dan Gettinger. He founded the Center for the Study of the Drone at Bard College and is now director of publications at the Vertical Flight Society. Suppliers in third-party countries may not even know that they are supplying components for Iranian drones. So that's part of the challenge. Despite that, the components reveal a lot about the Iranian and Russian weapons programs. For example, most of the foreign components Fleeters and his team have found were made before 2021. So there probably aren't a lot of them left. And that could create a new bottleneck in the supply chain and perhaps prevent some of these weapons from continuing to target Ukraine. I'm Dina Temple-Raston for Marketplace. Dina's cybersecurity podcast is called Click Here. I'm David Brancaccio. It's the Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by PNC Bank, celebrating all who go above and beyond to give kids the best start in life. PNC is committed to early education. More at pncgrowupgreat.com. I'm All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.